0: chapter 5 part 1 of the ordeal of mark twain this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the ordeal of mark twain by van wick brooks chapter 5 the candidate for gentility part 1 Quote, Follow his call? Good heavens! That is what men do as bachelors, but an engaged man only follows his bride. End quote. Ibsen, The Comedy of Love. The Freethinkers' Society in Pudd'nhead Wilson, as I have recalled, consisted of two members Judge Driscoll, the president and pudd'nhead himself judge driscoll says our author could be a free thinker and still hold his place in society because he was the person of most consequence in the community and therefore could venture to go his own way and follow out his own notions as for pudd'nhead with his crazy calendar he was a sort of outcast anyway no one cared a straw what pudd'nhead believed it was mark twain's little paraphrase that fable of tocqueville's comment i know of no country in which there is so little independence of mind and real freedom of discussion as in america mark twain has corroborated this in so many words himself in our country he says we have those three unspeakably precious things, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, and the prudence never to practice either. An American can have a mind of his own, in short, upon one of two conditions only. Either he must be willing to stay at the bottom of the ladder of success, or he must be able to climb to the top no one cares to impugn a fool no one dares to impugn a captain of industry now when mark twain abdicated his independence as a creative spirit he put his foot on the first rung of that ladder the children of light are all puddin heads in the eyes of the children of this world and if mark twain had been able and willing to remain in the ranks of the children of light he would have been perfectly free to starve and to shine but once he had made his bid for success he had to accept its moral consequences the freedom he had lost at the foot of the ladder he could hope to regain only at the top meanwhile he had to play the recognized American game according to the recognized American rules. Here Mark Twain was utterly at sea. His essential instinct, the instinct of the artist, had been thwarted and repressed. Nevertheless, just because he was essentially an artist, he was a greenhorn in the tricks of getting on why it was a constant surprise to him at first that people laughed at his stories and gave him gold and silver for telling them his acquisitive instinct no doubt had asserted itself with the lapse of his creative instinct still it was not so to speak a personal instinct it was only the instinct of his heredity and his environment which had sprung up in a spirit that had been swept clear for it it was wholly unable to focus mark twain he all his life the most inept of businessmen without practical judgment without foresight without any of poor richard's virtues was never says mr howells a man who cared anything about money except as a dream and he wanted more and more of it to fill out the spaces of this dream yes to fill out the spaces the prodigious failure of his genius had left vacant to win fame and fortune meanwhile as his parents had wished him to do had now become his dominant desire and almost everyone he met knew more about the art of success than he did He had to make good, but in order to do so, he had to subject himself to those who knew the ropes. Consequently, whoever excelled him in skill, in manners, in prestige, stood to him in loco parentis. And to complete the ironic circle, he was endlessly grateful to those who led him about, like a Savoyard bear, because he felt as was indeed true, that it was to them he owed the success he had attained. This is the real meaning of Mr. Payne's remark. It was always Mark Twain's habit to rely on somebody. The list of those to whom he deferred is a long and varied one. In later years, he did not always consult his financial adviser, Mr. Rogers, we are told, any more than he always consulted his spiritual adviser twichell or his literary adviser howells when he intended to commit heresies in their respective provinces but these were the exceptions that proved the rule in general mark twain abandoned himself to the will and word of those who had won his allegiance there was Artemus ward there was anson burlingame there was henry ward beecher what they told him and how he obeyed we have just seen there was bret hart who he said trimmed and trained and schooled me patiently until he changed me from an awkward utterer of coarse grotesquenesses to a writer of paragraphs and chapters THAT HAVE FOUND A CERTAIN FAVOR IN THE EYES OF EVEN SOME OF THE VERY DECENTEST PEOPLE IN THE LAND. ABOVE ALL, AND AMONG MANY OTHERS, THERE WAS MR. HOWELLS, WHO, FROM THE FIRST MOMENT, WON HIS ABSOLUTE AND UNVARYING CONFIDENCE IN ALL LITERARY AFFAIRS. INDEED, ADDS MR. Payne, IN MATTERS PERTAINING TO LITERATURE AND TO LITERARY PEOPLE IN GENERAL, he laid his burden on william dean howells from that day it was to howells that he said apropos of the innocents abroad when i read that review of yours i felt like the woman who was so glad her baby had come white it has become the custom with a certain school of critics to assert that mark twain's spiritual rights were in some way infringed by his associates, and especially by his wife, the evident fact being that he craved authority with all the self-protective instinct of the child who has not learned safely to go his own way, and feels himself surrounded by pitfalls. There has always been somebody in authority over my manuscript, and privileged to improve it, he wrote in 1900, with a touch of angry chagrin, to Mr. S. S. McClure, but the privilege had always emanated from Mark Twain himself. In short, having lost the thread of his life and committed himself to the pursuit of prestige, Mark Twain had to adapt himself to the prevailing point of view of American society. The middle class says a contemporary English writer, Mr. R. H. Gretton, is that portion of the community to which money is the primary condition and the primary instrument of life. If that is true, we can understand why Matthew Arnold observed that the whole American population of his time belonged to the middle class, when, accordingly, mark twain accepted the spiritual rule of the majority he found himself leading to use an expression of bridge players from his weakest suit it was not as a young writer capable of great artistic achievements that he was valued now but as a promising money-maker capable of becoming a plutocrat and meanwhile Instead of being an interesting individual, he was a social inferior. His uncouth habits, his lack of education, his outlandish manners and appearance, his very picturesqueness, everything that made foreigners delight in him, all these raw materials of personality that would have fallen into their natural place— if he had been able to consummate his freedom as an artist, were millstones about the neck of a young man whose salvation depended upon his winning the approval of bourgeois society. His outrageousness, as Mr. Howells calls it, had ceased to be the sign of some priceless, unformulated force. It had become a disadvantage, a disability, a mere outrageousness. That gift of humor was a gold mine. So much everyone saw. Mark Twain was evidently cut out for success. But he had a lot of things to live down first. He was, in a word, a roughneck from the West, on probation. And if he wanted to get on, it was understood that he had to qualify. We cannot properly grasp the significance of Mark Twain's marriage unless we realize that he had been maneuvered into the role of a candidate for gentility. But here, in order to go forward, we shall have to go back. What had been Mark Twain's original unconscious motive in surrendering his creative life? To fulfill the oath he had taken so solemnly AT HIS DEAD FATHER'S SIDE. HE HAD SWORN TO MAKE GOOD IN ORDER TO PLEASE HIS MOTHER. IN SHORT, WHEN THE ARTIST IN HIM HAD ABDICATED, THE FAMILY MAN, IN WHOM PERSONAL AND DOMESTIC INTERESTS AND RELATIONS AND LOYALTIES TAKE PRECEDENCE OF ALL OTHERS, HAD COME TO THE FRONT. HIS HOME HAD EVER BEEN THE HUB OF MARK Twain's UNIVERSE deep down says mr Payne, of the days of his first triumphs in nevada he was lonely and homesick he was always so away from his own kindred and at thirty-two able to go back to his mother without shame having at last retrieved his failure as a minor he had renewed the peculiar filial bond which had remained precisely that of his infancy. Jane Clemens was sixty-four at this time, we are told, but as keen and vigorous as ever, proud, even if somewhat critical, of this handsome, brilliant man of new name and fame who had been her mischievous, wayward boy. She petted him, joked with him, scolded him, and inquired searchingly into his morals and habits in turn he petted comforted and teased her she decided that he was the same sam and always would be a true prophecy it was indeed so true that mark twain who required authority as much as he required affection could not fail now to seek in the other sex someone who would take his mother's place all his life as we know he had to be mothered by somebody and he transferred this filial relation to at least one other person before it found its born first in his wife and afterward in his daughters this was mother fairbanks of the quaker city party who had we are told so large an influence on the tone and character of those travel letters which established his fame she sewed my buttons on he wrote he was thirty-two at the time kept my clothing in presentable form fed me on egyptian jam when i behaved lectured me awfully and cured me of several bad habits it was only natural therefore that he should have accepted the rule of his wife implicitly that he should have gloried as mr howells says in his subjection to her after my marriage he told professor henderson she edited everything i wrote and what is more she not only edited my works she edited me what indeed were mark twain's works in the totality of that relationship. What, for that matter, was Olivia Clemens? She was more than a person. She was a symbol. After her death, Mark Twain was always deploring the responsibility he had been to her. Does he not fall into the actual phrase his mother had used about him? She always said, I was the most difficult child she had. She was, I say, more than a person. She was a symbol. For just as she had taken the place of his mother, so, at her death, her daughters took her place. Mr. Payne tells how, when Mark Twain was seventy or more, Miss Clara Clemens, leaving home for a visit, would pin up a sign on the billiard-room door. No billiards after ten p.m., a sign that was always outlawed. He was a boy, Mr. Payne says, whose parents had been called away, left to his own devices, and bent on a good time. He used to complain humorously how his daughters were always trying to keep him straight, dusting papa off, as they called it, and how, wherever he went, little notes and telegrams of admonition followed him i have been used he said to obeying my family all my life and by virtue of this lovable weakness too he was the typical american male as we can see now it was affection rather than material self-interest that was leading mark twain onward and upward it had always been affection he had never at bottom wanted to make good for any other reason than to please his mother. And in order to get on, he had had to adopt his mother's values of life. He had had to repress the deepest instinct in him, and accept the guidance of those who knew the ropes of success. As the ward of his mother, he had never consciously broken with the traditions of Western society. Now, a candidate for gentility on terms wholly foreign to his nature he found the filial bond of old renewed with tenfold intensity in a fresh relationship he had to make good in his wife's eyes and that was a far more complicated obligation as we shall see mark twain rebelled against her will just as he had rebelled against his mothers, yet could not seriously or finally question anything she thought or did. He adored her as little less than a saint, we are told, which is only another way of saying that, automatically, her gods had become his. It is not the custom in American criticism to discuss the relations between authors and their wives so intensely personal is the atmosphere of our society that to stoop and botanize upon the family affairs even of those whose lives and opinions give its tone to our civilization is regarded as a sort of sacrilege think of the way in which english criticism has thrashed out the pros and cons of thomas and jane carlyle percy and harriet shelley lord and lady byron and the bronte family and the lambs and the rossetties is it to satisfy the neighborly village ear or even a mere normal concern with interesting relationships at bottom English critics are so copious and so candid in these domestic analyses because they believe that what great writers think and feel is of profound importance to society, and because they know that what any man thinks and feels is largely determined by personal circumstances and affections. It is, no doubt, because of this frank, free habit of mind that all the best biographies even of our american worthies hamilton franklin and lincoln for instance have been written by englishmen no one will deny i suppose that mark twain's influence upon our society has been either in a positive or in a negative way profound when therefore we know that by his own statement his wife not only edited his works but edited him we feel slightly annoyed with mr howells who whenever he speaks of mrs clemens abandons his role as a realist and carefully conceals that puissant personage under the veil of her heavenly whiteness we feel that the friend, the neighbor, the guest, has prevailed in Mr. Howells's mind over the artist and the thinker, and that he is far more concerned with fulfilling his personal obligations and his private loyalties than the proper public task of a psychologist and a man of letters. Meanwhile, we know that neither the wives of European authors— nor for that matter the holy women of the new testament have suffered any real degradation from being scrutinized as creatures of flesh and blood if one stoops and botanizes upon mrs clemens it is because when her standards became those of her husband she stepped immediately into a role far more truly influential than that of any president. Olivia Langdon was the daughter of a wealthy coal-dealer and mine-owner of Elmira, New York. Perhaps you know Elmira. Perhaps, in any case, you can imagine it. Those upstate towns have a civilization all their own. Without the traditions of moral freedom and intellectual culture, which new england has never quite lost they had been so salted down with the spoils of a conservative industrial life that they had attained by the middle of the nineteenth century a social stratification as absolute as that of new england itself a stagnant fresh-water aristocracy one and seven-eighths or two and a quarter generations deep, densely provincial, resting on a basis of angular sectarianism, eviscerated politics, and raw money, ruled the roast, imposing upon all the rest of society its own type, forcing all to submit to it or to imitate it who does not know those august brick and stucco mansard palaces of the middle states those fountains on the front lawn that have never played those bronze animals with their permanent but economical suggestions of the baronial park the quintessence of thrifty ostentation a maximum of terrifying effect based upon a minimum Of psychic expenditure. They are the Vatican's of the coal popes of yesteryear, and all the Elmira's with a single voice proclaimed them sacrosanct. We can imagine how Mark Twain must have been struck dumb in such a presence. Elmira, says Mr. Payne, was a conservative place, a place of pedigree and family tradition that a stranger, a former printer, pilot, miner, wandering journalist, and lecturer, was to carry off the daughter of one of the oldest and wealthiest families, was a thing not to be lightly permitted. The fact that he had achieved a national fame did not count against other considerations. The social protest amounted almost to insurrection one remembers the story of thomas carlyle that scottish stonemason's son who carried off the daughter of dr welsh of dumfries one conceives what carlyle's position would have been if he had not found his own soul before he fell in love and if jane welsh had been merely the passive reflection of a society utterly without respect for the life of the spirit he would have been and would have felt himself the interloper then he would not have been Carlyle, but the stonemason's son and she would have been the lady bountiful for mark twain had not married an awakened soul he had married a young girl without experience without imagination who had never questioned anything understood anything desired anything who had never been conscious of any will apart from that of her parents her relatives her friends to win her approval and her pride therefore and love compelled him to do that he had to win the approval and the pride of elmira itself he had to win the imprimatur of all that vast and intricate system of privilege and convention of which elmira was the symbol they had all said of olivia langdon who was the family idol that no one was good enough for her certainly not this adventurous soldier of letters from the west charles langdon her brother and mark twain's old comrade was so mortified at having brought this ignominy upon his own household that he set off on a voyage round the world in order to escape the wedding furthermore mark twain's friends in california replied unanimously to mr langdon's inquiries about his character that while he was certainly a good fellow he would make the worst husband on record would not all these things have put any lover on his mettle mark twain was on probation and his provisional acceptability in this new situation was due not to his genius but to the fact that he was able to make money by it what made the langdons relent and consider his candidacy was quite plainly as we can see from mr Payne's record the vast success mark twain was having as a humorous journalist and lecturer with the publication of the innocents abroad as we know he had become suddenly a person of substance an associate of men of consequence even in new york people pointed him out in the street he was a lion a conquering hero and elmira could not help yielding to that it would be difficult as mr paine says for any family to refuse relationship with one whose star was so clearly ascending but could he would he keep it up to be sure he considered himself we are specifically told not as a literary man but as a journalist his financial pace had been set for him. I wasn't going to touch a book, he wrote, unless there was money in it, and a good deal of it. He had already formed those habits of pecuniary emulation and conspicuous waste which Mr. Veblen has defined for us, and which were almost a guarantee that he would take a common-sense view of his talent and turn it to the best financial account. Three months before his marriage, this erstwhile barefoot boy was already, the best possible omen for one with his resources, twenty-two thousand dollars in debt. He had put his shoulder to the wheel, and had proved that he was able to make money even faster than he spent it. AND THE INSTINCTS OF THE FAMILY MAN HAD SO MANIFESTED THEMSELVES IN HIS NEW DEVOTION THAT, OTHER THINGS BEING EQUAL, AND HIS WIFE WOULD SEE TO THAT, HE REALLY WAS A SAFE CONSERVATIVE RISK AS A WEALTHY COAL DEALER'S SON-IN-LAW. JERVIS LANGDON CAPITULATED. HE WAS A HEARTY SOUL. HE HAD ALWAYS LIKED MARK Twain, ANYWAY now he felt that this soldier of fortune could be trusted to cherish his daughter in the style as people say to which she had been accustomed his own household expenses were forty thousand dollars a year of course they couldn't begin on that scale it wasn't to be expected and besides it wasn't the custom but at any rate he was going to start them off and he was going to do it handsomely one remembers how in the gilded age when philip sterling conquers the mountain of coal that makes his fortune he became suddenly a person of consideration whose speech was freighted with meaning whose looks were all significant the words of a proprietor of a rich coal mine our author adds naively have a golden sound and his common sayings are repeated as if they were solid wisdom mark twain must have had jervis langdon in his mind when he wrote that as an aspirant to fortune he naturally stood in awe of a man who had so conspicuously arrived and now that this man had become his own bountiful father-in-law he could not in his gratitude sufficiently pledge himself to keep his best financial foot forward jervis langdon gave the young couple a house in a fashionable street in buffalo a house newly and fully fitted up with a carriage and a coachman and all the other appointments of a prosperous menage it was a surprise one of the unforeseen delights of mark twain's wedding day he woke up so to speak and found himself with the confused and intoxicating sensations of a bridegroom absolutely committed to a scale of living such as no mere literary man at the outset of his career could ever have lived up to. He had been fairly shanghaied into the business man's paradise. But Jervis Langdon had foreseen everything. Mark Twain's ambition at this time, we are told, lay in the direction of retirement in some prosperous newspaper enterprise, with the comforts and companionship of a home. That was the ambition already evoked which his new situation confirmed, the ambition which had now fully become his because the Langdons encouraged it. And as he had no money actually on hand, his father-in-law bound himself to the extent of twenty-five thousand dollars, and advanced half of it in cash, so that Mark Twain could acquire a third interest in the Buffalo Express. Thus, almost without realizing it he had actually become a business man with love and honor obliging him to remain one the full consequences of this moral surrender shall we call it can only appear as we go on with our story meanwhile we may note that precisely because of his divided soul Mark Twain could not consistently and deliberately pursue the main chance. Had he been able to do so, he might, in a few years, have bought his liberty. But he lost interest in his journalistic enterprise, just as he was to lose interest in so many other lucrative enterprises in the future. And every time he was driven back to make a fresh attempt. I have a perfect horror and heart-sickness over it, Mrs. Clemens wrote to her sister after the bankruptcy of the publishing house of Charles L. Webster and Company. I cannot get away from the feeling that business failure means disgrace. I suppose it always will mean that to me. Sue if you were to see me you would see that i have grown old very fast during this last year i have wrinkled most of the time i want to lie down and cry everything seems to me so impossible naturally inevitably but imagine an author who was also a devoted lover having to respond to a stimulus like that His bankruptcy was, to Mark Twain, like a sudden dawn of joyous freedom. Farewell, a long farewell to business, he exclaimed during those weeks of what might have seemed an impending doom. I will never touch it again. I will live in literature. I will wallow in it, revel in it. I will swim in ink. BUT WHEN HIS RELEASE FINALLY COMES, HE WRITES AS FOLLOWS TO HIS WIFE, WHOM HE HAS LEFT IN FRANCE. NOW AND THEN A GOOD AND DEAR JOE TWITCHELL, OR SUSIE WARNER, CONDOLES WITH ME, AND SAYS, CHEER UP, DON'T BE DOWNHEARTED, AND NONE OF THEM SUSPECT WHAT A BURDEN HAS BEEN LIFTED FROM ME, AND HOW BLITHE I AM INSIDE except when i think of you dear heart then i am not blithe for i seem to see you grieving and ashamed and dreading to look people in the face you only seem to see rout retreat and dishonored colors dragging in the dirt whereas none of these things exist there is temporary defeat but no dishonor and we will march again charlie warner said to show livy isn't worrying so long as she's got you and the children she doesn't care what happens she knows it isn't her affair which didn't convince me no mrs clemens who was so far from being the votary of genius was not quite the votary of love either she was before all the unquestioning daughter of that wealthy coal-dealer of elmira who had held about a quarter of a million in her own right her husband might lag and lapse as a literary man but when he fell behind in the race of pecuniary emulation she could not help applying the spur she had even invested her own patrimony in her husband's ventures and all that the page typesetting machine had spared went up the chimney in the failure of charles l webster and company of course mark twain had to retrieve that and so it went as the years passed owing to the very ineptitude That ought to have kept him out of business altogether, he was involved more and more deeply in it. End of chapter five, part one. Recording by Lucretia B.